what's going on veterinary anesthesia nurse hope you're having a great summer so far and not boiling like we are here on the east coast i have a really fantastic episode for you today i am joined by not one amazing vts in ecc but two vts in ecc you probably know them already if you've attended an ivex in the past five years and sat in on any technician lectures You might also know them if you're following any veterinary podcasting and you've noticed that this podcast just keeps coming up because it's so damn good. And I'm definitely talking about the uh, uh, Vet Tech Cafe podcast. Uh, You might also get to hear their kind of off-the-cup Vet Tech tap room, which I'm a fan of as well. So really fun stuff coming from these two uh, just really great, not only just brains of all around uh, emergency and critical care stuff, but really good influences for the veterinary technology field as a whole. And I'm talking about none other than the Jeff Backus and Dave Cowan. Please welcome them to the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast. Hey guys, what's going on? Not much. What's going on with you? Not much. I mean, you know, here podcasting. Got yeah, got yeah, yeah. got a got a relief shift in today. So uh, nice, nice. Thank you very much <laughs> for having okay. us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on your show and everything that you guys are doing. Um, before we get into the case of the day that we're going to be talking about, let's talk about you know you guys and what you're doing. Um, again, Jeff, Dave, you're both very well known for lecturing to veterinarians and technicians in the field of emergency critical care, um, intensive care, all that kind of stuff. But most recently, I think a lot of people know you from the Vet Tech Cafe podcast. So tell me, how did this get started and why do you think uh, it has become such a phenomenon? It's, it's so, <laughs> so amazing. Phenomenon, huh? <laughs> uh, well, you know, it, go for it, it was a... Yeah, it was uh, one night actually at IVEX uh, in D.C., which was, I think, 2019. 2019, and, uh, yeah. Dave and I, to avoid extra cost of the conference, we were sharing an Airbnb and over probably a couple of too many beers one night. We <laughs> were kind of kicking around the idea of a podcast, and then probably three hours later, we had an entire format figured out and a bunch of guests that we wanted to talk to. And then we left D.C. and we got home to our respective areas and we were like, hey, are are we still doing this? And now three years later, here we are still doing this. Yeah, it was one of those things where we we just kind of had this great idea. And, um, you know, Jeff and I were both kind of at a crossroads of we weren't really happy with doing what we were doing. And we we said there's got to be other things that are out there that we as technicians can do. And, you know, we just thought of all the different avenues that we could be as technicians, like, yeah, we should talk to people and, and get other people involved and, and let other people know that there are other things out there other than just working, you know, either second, third shifts, uh, ICU shifts, working in a clinic. Uh, and I, I think over the last, is it three years now? Wow. We've tried to, like, focus on as many VTS academies as we can, people that are doing things that are just different in the field that are, like like I said, not just working in a clinic. Uh, and I, th- I think the reason that it's popular is that we're, we're so passionate about it. And we, we do love talking to people, uh, as, as two extreme introverts, we do love talking to people about this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, what I think is really interesting about your podcast is that you have two VTS in ECC and 
it's not really a podcast about emergency and critical care. You're really focusing on technicians' stories and like, you know, their own personal growth journeys and that kind of thing. One thing that I think is really interesting and, and super cool about it is that you're partnering with Better Health and mental health and just burnout and all these things that stress veterinary technicians. I mean, that's not kind of swept under the rug. It's really at the forefront. And we talk about it a lot and or you guys talk about it a lot on your podcast. So walk me through, like, how did you decide you did not want to do a podcast just talking about emergency and critical care stuff and you wanted to tell technician stories? Uh, well, I mean, kind of like I, like I said earlier, is that, you know, we were kind of in our own little ruts of what we were doing and, and our world was ECC and just thinking about other things that are outside of our, our normal realm of, of what we know is, is kind of what brought us to doing that is, is saying that there's other stuff out there and we got to bring that to other people. Yeah. I, I was, I was really at a point I wanted to leave veterinary medicine altogether. I was ready to walk away and go work at a brewery. And thankfully I got the job I'm in <laughs> now, but we, we made it, we were very intentional about not wanting to be clinical at all. We've had one episode, I would say that was mildly clinical with Noah Jones during COVID. And we geeked out about ventilator settings and what he was doing on people, not so much like, you know, for like CE kind of purposes, but we, we, we made it a point to stay non-clinical and, and talk about our experiences, how we ended up in the position we were in, investigate other avenues that we could find ways to get out of it. And it's really morphed into just talking about people that are super passionate about their one area of veterinary medicine that they found. And it's actually been really reinvigorating for me um, and kind of reignited my passion in veterinary medicine, talking to so many people that are so stoked about their one little niche that they've found. Yeah. So speaking of kind of not being clinical, um, <laughs> technically, <laughs> all three clinical. of us on right, here right. Like, <laughs> are not really super clinical. Anymore. I mean, I did pick up a relief shift today. Um, but tell our listeners, you know, kind of what are you guys doing and where are you working now? Um, kind of still being in veterinary medicine, but not really being, uh, you know, on the floor clinical five days a week. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I'm doing I'm doing relief shifts now, like like you are, Tasha, and um, uh, I just mistakenly somehow signed up for some uh, surgery on call shifts in August, in August <laughs> that I I was like, why did I do that? <laughs> but I but I am still on the floor. Um, I I am I am much less on the floor than I used to be. Um, like I max out at like three to four shifts a week. Um, I just went through a bout of COVID, so I've actually had the last two weeks off of not working at all, um, which working as relief, I can do that. Uh, I can just say, you know what? Somebody's got to take these shifts because I can't do them. Um, but, I, but I am on the floor somewhat, but just it, like if I don't want to work, I just don't. And uh, I'm trying to focus more on CE and training and things like that um, to kind of like as I as I'm getting older, like being on the floor and, you know, not to say wrestling with dogs because we don't really do that anymore, but like picking up big dogs and uh, dealing with patients that are not not as com compliant uh, is is not something that that gets me going anymore. When I was younger, younger tech, all that stuff kind of got me going, and I love doing that stuff. But now it's just like I, I just want to teach people how to place catheters and, <laughs> and 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 nerd out on on different stuff. 
Yeah, I hear you. Today I had a, a great Pyrenees oh, on the table. Oof, terrible. And me and another tech were trying to do uh, <laughs> like shoulder rads on it. And I was like, oh I'm too old for this. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, you need no shoulder thanks. rads after that. <laughs> uh, and Jeff, what are you doing? Yeah, so I uh, I actually last worked in clinic in like September, October of 2020. And since November of that year, I have been working for the ASPCA Animal Poison Control Center. I work remotely from home, uh, answering mostly client phone calls, but some vet clinic phone calls as well about all of the stuff that you that are listening, somebody from your hospital has probably called or, or uh, referred owners to us. Um, and some cases, probably like 80% of the calls now that I take, I'm fully trained to to manage on my own. Um, if it's something that I don't have a protocol for, I consult with a veterinarian and still kind of, you know, communicate with them what to do. But I absolutely love it. I'm a huge tox nerd. That's always been one of my favorite things of ECC anyway. So it was kind of a natural fit, though you do not have to be a tox nerd to, to work at the Poison Control Center. Uh, but it's really great working from home. It's very different. Uh, it's kind of isolating for my introvert self. It it actually took some getting used to not having physical coworkers. Um, but now I love it. I don't ever see myself going back to clinics, and I, and I'm okay with that. I, I, as Dave was saying, like I'm six foot six. The floor is a long way down for me, and I'm <laughs> I'm just I'm tired of bending over to pick things up and and stand on my feet all day. I'm, I'm happy with. With sitting at the desk and my setup now, so I'm 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 very very happy to do that. I'm even rolling back my speaking stuff to just strictly toxicology since I'm non-clinical anymore, um, and I'm just going to make that my focus now. That sounds awesome. Well, I'm like really excited uh, that you guys decided to be on the podcast and talk about some clinical things for a couple of minutes with us. <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's our case for today that we're going to talk about. So we have Hamilton, and Hamilton is a five-year-old Jack Russell Terrier. He presents into the ER because he has multiple bite wounds. He, his owner took him to the dog park. He, you know, listen, he's a Jack Russell Terrier. He is trying to run that dog park. Um, <laughs> and there were some other dogs that were not a fan of this. And listen, they had some words were exchanged. And he came out of it with some with some lacerations. He has them on his neck and on his thorax, et cetera. He's coming into you guys. Let's talk about some just some initial ER treatments. Again, because this is anesthesia and pain management focus, tell me, you know, when this dog comes into your clinic, you guys, what are some key things you are looking for? And then as far as first line analgesics, walk me through at your clinic what you guys would usually do. And then because this is a multiple bite wound thing, we know that he's probably not going to just go home after a couple hours. This friend, you know, is going to get hospitalized. So let's first talk about the initial ER treatment, but then maybe we'll segue into kind of what to do to keep him comfortable in the ICU, uh, how to manage his stress and his pain, uh, and how to keep him, you know, calm and chill so all of our nurses don't quit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm already kind of picturing myself walking out the door. No, I'm yeah. Um, I I would say for me, I I think a couple of things that you mentioned just in terms of bite wound location, neck and chest, um, is he breathing normally? You know, is there any evidence of, you know, a a flail chest or anything along those lines? And then whatever we can do probably from a 
a far away, at least at first, neurologic assessment? You know, is there any evidence of, of neck or spinal cord concern, you know, uh, as far as that goes? Because then we'll go down a different path with maybe emergency CT or something like that. If he otherwise looks like, you know, he's ready to take on 10 other dogs, um, then maybe you know, some, some pain meds, maybe some dexmedetomidine. I, I think typically where the last place I worked, methadone was commonly a frontline agent if it was available. Um, if not, you know, hydromorphone, something like that. And then potentially even dexmedetomidine if, if needed to really assess the wounds. That's probably some of the first things I would think of. On, on my side of things, you know, th- being the ER focused, I, I want to know where that patient is on the shock scale. Um, is, is this a early stage shock? Is this late stage shock? You know, what, what is this patient actually doing? Uh, but like Jeff said, I, I want to be able to assess neurologic damage um, and, and just be able to evaluate how extensive these wounds are. And, and if this patient came in kind of wrapped up, you know, we've, we've all seen some of the, the creative ways that owners will wrap up wounds with like socks and duct tape and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, and, and with our doctors, you know, our doctors are always I don't want to say always, but but a lot of times the doctors will say we, we don't want to give pain meds until we can assess where exactly the pain is. Um, but I, I want to get that done ASAP uh, because I, I want to get some pain meds onto that into that patient, um, either methadone or hydro, whatever you, whatever is available. And and Dex, I, I would be depending on where he is on the shock scale, I'd be a little mm-hmm. concerned about Dex. Uh, if if there's a heart condition, obviously we we don't want to do that. But you know if this is a a, a Jack Russell that's bouncing off the walls and, and super painful Dex is, is one of my favorite drugs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me too. I don't know if you guys know this about <laughs> me, but I kind of am a big fan of Dex Meditone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk really quickly. Let's just go back to something for our listeners who might not know these concepts. Dave, can you kind of explain to us what some things you would see in early stage shock versus late stage shock? So in early stage shocks, a lot of times what we'll see is a patient that appears normal, um, but really in the early stages of shock, what their what their body is doing is compensating. So it's, that's why it's called compensatory shock. Uh, so the body is compensating where a lot of things may be normal. Blood pressure may be normal. Heart rate may be normal. Temperature may be normal. But as that patient's reserves gets used up, you know, and it, and it sits on our triage table and they're trying to figure out what they want to do, if that patient is losing a lot of blood, and uh, going further down that that scale, you know, you're gonna see you're gonna see blood pressure drop, you're gonna see temperature drop, you can see the heart rate drop uh, precipitously as it gets further and further down in in that shock scale. So I wanna I wanna know where exactly that patient is on that shock scale before I start doing a bunch of stuff. That I'd answer yeah, your question. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> oh yeah. So like if we think about like late stage shock. And here, the only reason that I, I'm like kind of focusing in on this is, you know, if some listeners have a trauma or something like that come into their practice and they see, oh, everything looks normal. It's mm-hmm. fine. Like we can give drugs as usual. It might not always be fine. Right. 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 So we could be dealing with that early stage shock. And certainly friends, you know, I love me some dexmedetomidine. Okay. <laughs> I do love dexmedetomidine. <laughs> um, I love the ketamine. I love these mm-hmm. drugs. However, if we are dealing certainly with a late stage shock, right. we know that dexmedetomidine is going to reduce our cardiac output and therefore some oxygen delivery. And if we have a patient that it, you know isn't able to compensate for that, that can be uh, really detrimental to them. Mm-hmm. So that's I uh, just kind of want to put that out there for you guys. If you see a patient, you know, a trauma patient that comes in, this is what we're talking about when we say looking at the stages of shock. 
All right, so let's say that we get this patient some methadone. Um, def I'm a big fan of methadone. Again, as long as your dosing is correct, um, I'm a big fan of methadone. We don't want to do any weenie doses of methadone. Give them a nice dose of methadone. The good thing is that if you need to reverse it, you can reverse it, right? Right, and right. Same thing with Dexmed, if the patient can handle the Dexmed. Mm -hmm. So let's say that this patient can, we got them cleaned up, we gave them some sedation, none of the lacerations were penetrating the chest, so this is good. Uh, we're just dealing with some muscle and skin and lacerations. We get them sewn up, we have a lot of drains in place. We know that this is gonna be a kind of long road for healing for this guy, right? Right. So he's gotta be hospitalized and he's probably gonna be hospitalized for like, I don't know, 48, 72 hours, it's gonna be for a while. You guys know, you've seen this patient in your practice before. They do not want to be hospitalized. He is not happy in that crate. Um, but he's also pretty painful with all these skin lacerations. Talk to me about where, what are some ways, if we know we have to hospitalize this patient for 48, 72 hours, what are some ways that we can manage that pain and that stress pharmacologically and drug-wise, but also are there things that we can do just to manage that uh, stress and anxiety that don't involve drugs? And if so, like whatever ICU tips you have, we are all ears. <laughs> I think for me, as far as pain goes, um, I think one of the, as long as again, blood work was normal and there's nothing, you know, out of the, out of the ordinary concern wise, I think probably one of the biggest things I would consider is going to be an NSAID, um, provided the dog could handle it. And then there's obviously a lot coming out now about gabapentin and, and does it do as much as we thought it did for pain management, but I would probably still for this particular patient, assuming again, an adult Jack Russell Terrier that is just ready to take on the world. Um, I would still consider gabapentin at least for sedation combined with trazodone um, to kind of help him chill out and relax a little bit. I'll be very honest. I am much more a cat person than a dog person. And I always had a lot easier time with figuring out some of those nursing hack tricks, if you will, for cats than dogs. Like I used to love putting my laptop in a cage with a cat and putting on a YouTube video of just birds coming to a bird feeder or, you know, a fish <laughs> swimming in a fishbowl. And you could literally watch the cats, watch the films. I've never really had great as great a success finding those things with dogs. Uh, but taking them out for a walk every couple hours, again, as long as his wounds and injuries, you know, can, can do that. I think that's a big thing. I don't know, Dave, what do you have? I'm with you. Like I, I like abapen, tra trazodone, uh, definitely NSAIDs if that's going to work. If the pain is is really uh, severe with these guys, I'm a big fan of fentanyl CRIs to Heck just yeah. get them get them to that good plane of of analgesia and keep it there instead of. I think it was I think it was Darcy Palmer that I I saw one year at Ivex that kind of showed me that graph of you know, the, the peaks and the valleys of giving intermittent, uh, mm -hmm. pain medications as opposed to a CRI. And, you know, that graph sticks with me, uh, even to this day. And that was probably a good seven, eight years ago. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, of doing CRIs, not only because it's good pain management, but I'm also like a super math nerd and I like to do all the math for that. So <laughs> that part, part of that part of it kind of works in too, but anything I can do to get them to a good level of pain management is going to, is going to be helpful. And then for like nursing things, um, it, de it depends on the patient. You know, if this is a, 
you may end up trying a few different things um, like blocking off their cage so that it's, it's kind of dark in there that sometimes will help. Um, like Jeff said, taking them out for a walk if you can, just to keep them somewhat engaged uh, if, if that's what they need. Uh, but again, it's going to be de- really dependent on what the, what this Jack Russell needs yeah. other than a big slug of decks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> to, <laughs> I definitely have seen, out. I've definitely seen some people, you know, take like a, a big pillow and put a scrub shirt mm-hmm. on it and put it back in the back, you know, even like hang like a little mop head over it to kind of try to make it look like <laughs> yeah. a person and stick it in the back of the cage. Or, uh, you know, a lot of times the, um, what do they call those? The feeding mats where you mash the wet food into the mat and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of make them get, you know, and I think for, for a high energy dog like that, I think a lot of that helps. It's just, it's probably stringing together a lot of short term <laughs> solutions, yeah, kind of yeah. one right after another. But, um, and then hopefully, a lot of trial honestly, and error. <laughs> yeah, if, if he's really feeling that well, you know, and his effusions start to, to back off and we're having to empty the drains sooner or, you know, less frequently than we were previously, it might actually be a dog we consider discharging sooner than we would other dogs. If he's really, truly going to do better at home. I think that's sometimes something we don't think a lot about is like, yes, we would love to keep this dog another 24 hours, but are we going to be doing so at its detriment? Um, and you know, of course the owner has to be on board for that. And, and there's a lot of communication that has to take place, but I think sometimes for some pets, that needs to be a realistic option. Yeah. And it, like you said, it's gotta be, it's gotta be an owner that can actually handle it. And I, I don't want to yeah, send it home sure. with somebody that Agreed. can't handle it. And then they're right back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, one thing that I found really interesting in doing some reading just in ICU, again, things that are going to help to relieve stress and pain is this thought or this idea of uh, quiet hours or mm-hmm. things like that in the ICU. So for the people listening who don't know, uh, walk us through what a quiet hours would look like in an ICU and why it can be beneficial. Well, uh, quiet hours would be, you know, later at night, um, depending on your practice, depending on how full your ICU is. Uh, you know, it could start as early as 11 o'clock. Some I've, I've worked at some practices where quiet hour starts at one and ends at six o'clock ish. Uh, and it kind of goes into that thought of, you know, we've got these patients that are in these ICUs with these, with these fluorescent lights that are just shining down on them and they don't ever get any time to actually sleep, uh, which is something that we, (laughs) we need, Uh, our patients need that as well. Um, you know, there's no benefit to having that patient awake for 24 hours a day. That that doesn't help anyone. Um, and then we can also go back to thinking about stress. You know, stressful situations are going to delay healing uh, because you're you're spitting out your adrenals, your cortisol spitting out, and that's got it, it affects your immune status. And if you're constantly stressed, you're not going to heal and you're not going to get any better. So getting that those quiet times, and for me, that's more of a you know, the treatments that happen in those hours are basically uh, peak. You look at them and say they're still mm-hmm. alive. Um, no TPRs are done then. Feeding if, if they if they absolutely need it. But as, as hands off as you can possibly be with those patients during those hours to give them a chance to actually sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such a um, important thing. And one ER or ICU that I worked with. 
they did a pretty good job of like turning down the lights and having some quiet hours and, you know, trying to time their treatments so that they mm-hmm. weren't going into mm-hmm. those yep. cages. And I think it really was only like four hours, but still it's four hours of, yeah. you know, quiet and calm and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, really quickly, I want to go back to just because the pain management nerd in me wants to go back and talk about the CRIs because I'm a huge fan of CRIs. Um, and I do use a lot of fentanyl CRIs or opioid CRIs, but to add to what you guys have already suggested, I will let people know I'm a huge fan of a sub-anesthetic ketamine CRI. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in an animal like this that has been hospitalized for multiple wounds involving um, the skin, right? And if we think about drugs that work on you know, somatic pain versus visceral pain, and we know that our drugs like our NMDA receptor um, antagonists like ketamine, teletamine, amantadine work really well on somatic pain. And I find that a low dose ketamine CRI really is a nice adjunct for these guys. Um, not only is it going to help with that somatic pain, but also it's a really nice ache because it's really cheap. It's an easy CRI to figure out. It's mm-hmm. not going to sedate them a lot. Right. Uh, it's going to reduce your overall opioid component. And we know from the research that these dogs that have the, like, you know, this trauma, especially with pain that goes untreated or just an anxiety that goes along with it, these dogs can develop wind up pain, hyperalgesia and all that. Mm -hmm. And we know that ketamine early on or getting ketamine onto those receptors will help prevent that. So that's just a side note. I love ketamine. Uh, It's a really fantastic drug. Again, when used in the right patient population, (laughs) um, certainly... Certainly, if this was a uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy cat that came in and needed to be in the ICU, I would not be putting them on a ketamine CRI. Uh, I would be putting them on a Dexmed CRI. Right, right, oh, right. <laughs> one thing I want to touch on too, Tasha, since you were talking about the uh, the quiet hours, you know, one thing that was always really difficult was pets that were in the oxygen cage because when that thing clicks on every couple of minutes oh, yeah. and you know, it goes to refill the oxygen cage, of course that click and you know the hum is really nice for white noise but when it clicks on it oftentimes jars the patients awake and sometimes it was really difficult for me probably frankly out of laziness to advocate for just putting nasal lines in a dog as opposed to you know again assuming the patient is stable enough and and can go through the process of having them as opposed to sitting in an oxygen cage that they're going to be constantly awoken i felt like those pets that could that could go that route actually over you know 24 hours over 24 hours got better sleep because they were you know not constantly jarred awake so i think that's one thing too it's it's a it's a really difficult thing to to take them out of the oxygen cage because they can just be in there and you don't have to do so much work on them but from that patient comfort standpoint i think there is an argument to be made there too Mm -hmm. okay now from a again just a person who doesn't work in ICU and does not work a lot. Like I don't put a lot of nasal oxygen in my patients because I have an endotracheal tube. Um, (laughs) But if I was looking at just the amount of oxygen that they're actually able to absorb and take in and get, is, is it better with nasal oxygen than a, you know, you know what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I know with anesthesia and O2, Obviously, they're going to get more and absorb more and be useful if I have an endotracheal tube as opposed to flow by. 
is oxygen absorption and delivery better with the nasal cannula than the oxygen chamber? Yes. Yep. I mean, the percentage okay. is about the same, but in that oxygen cage, you know, the the, the cage will say that it's it's delivering forty percent, but how how accurate is that? And I know with with a with a nasal cannula, you know, you're going to be getting more concentrated oxygen to that patient. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm thinking that that might contribute to just some stress relief because we know when patients are dyspneic and they cannot breathe correctly and they're fighting for air, any bit of oxygen is going to help them yep, right. not feel so stressed and anxious. Right. And I think for some of those patients, at least in the short term, it's best to get them in an oxygen cage and figure out what's going on and figure out all your next steps. And then if they get a little bit better to a point where you can actually you know, sedate them, uh, to put in or, or restrain them to put in a nasal oxygen line. If if they're fighting it more than it's worth, then an oxygen cage it's is not be the it, best yeah. bet, obviously. Yeah. But I, I think really, you know, there is something to be said for too. If you can keep preparacane drops and keep that nostril nice and numbed and lubed up and what have you, I think overall you're you're probably going to have a better, on average, a, a better outcome that way. All right. And then just one more thing. What's your guys' thought on just from a patient comfort standpoint? Is there a benefit to placing a urinary catheter or is it really better for the patient to get up and out and into some fresh air and, and go outside to urinate? What, what kind of patient are you talking about? I'm still talking about our Jack Russell friend. Oh, the Jack. And okay. I know that some like I, I've worked in some places where they'll say, you know, he's going to be here for 48 hours. While he's out, let's just put a UCAS in him. Then mm. we'll be able to like monitor his ins and outs. We maybe don't have to take him out to the bathroom as often. We don't have to move him as often. This is a little easier. Sure. However, again, from, you know, just patient, uh, you know, getting them outside, keeping their timeline and their life as normal as possible, getting outside fresh air, letting them step in the grass, that kind of thing uh, would would seem to be much better for their mental health. Uh, do you guys have a thought either way? It depends I on would. the patient. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, I, oh man, I love that answer. <laughs> I give that answer to everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would say if, if this is a Jack Russell that, you know, maybe has some pre-renal azotemia on initial lab work or, or, you know, as, as, as Dave was alluding to earlier, really in a bad state of shock where we do want to kind of keep an eye on ins and outs. Yes, absolutely. For a period of time, I think that's worth advocating for. I think within, you know, if in 12 to 24 hours, this guy is up and bouncing around and he's healing and, you know, his lab values are fine and all of that stuff, then yes, I do want him going out, you know, a bit more frequently. Again, as long as we're not stretching out those wounds or making things worse with the increased motion or what have you. But then I think too, you know, is it, something I don't have to think about here in Southern California, but in my time in, in new England, is it five degrees and snowing outside? Um, and that mm -hmm. dog, as soon as you open the back door is going to be like, Whoa, I ain't going out there. Um, <laughs> and, and, and literally hold it for 24 or 36 hours, you know? Th so then as Dave said, I think it's highly patient dependent, but I, again, I think as veterinary technicians, no matter what department you're in, that's kind of looking at the global picture of everything that's going on and, and thinking critically about what that patient needs and what's going to be best for them. I also, I also want to 
mention that if you're if you're looking at like the early stages of this and this patient is really painful and you have to have them on like a dextomotor CRI or something that keeps them pretty much lateral, then yeah, I do want a UCATH in there because they're not going to go out. They're having trouble standing in the cage because we have to use so much pain meds to keep their, their pain under control. Then yeah, I would rather have a, a UCATH in them than have them soil in themselves or, you know, have to try to walk them outside and they just, they just can't stand up. Um, so in, in the early stages of things, depending on how sedate you need to keep this patient. Yeah. I, I do want a, a UCATH in these guys. And the argument I, I always get from the doctors as well, we're, we're running the risk of introducing bacteria. Well, if this patient has got multiple bite wounds, guess what? He's already on antibiotics. So hopefully we're already addressing that situation. Yeah, I agree. I think most of my patients are coming in, or most of my patients are coming out of surgery, a trauma, especially on multiple different antibiotics. So I don't think that's, um, but I, I'm a fan of a, a urinary catheter uh, in the short term. Again, especially if, for me, post-surgical, um, I definitely want our patients to get up and around, you know, even when we're talking about like orthopedic patients. But at the same time, if you have an abdominal procedure or, you know, an animal that's really painful in the abdomen, um, to sling walk a patient or to have somebody go yeah. and manually express them is really even more painful. And I like just put a urinary catheter in these yeah. patients. Like, let's think about like, right. you know, for the 12 hours, if I have a abdominal incision and you came in and, and we're trying to manually express my bladder, Oof. I would be not a fan of that. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. So it's little things like this, you know, the quiet hours, potentially thinking about a urinary catheter. Um, again, like like Jeff said, putting on a YouTube video to have some enrichment. Maybe think about your music choices. Um, there was a study, actually, and I can load this into the show notes, looking at the type of music played and how it affected animals' uh, stress levels and cortisol levels. Um, I know you guys will be shocked at this information. The animals were not fans of heavy metal music. <laughs> and instead... <laughs> really preferred class i know i was like what animals don't like pantera they don't like metallica um, they don't like slayer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was like are you ready to be hospitalized do you like megadeth Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they did find that classical or uh, light music like that um without words, was the preferred in that study. Um, and I do know that if you guys are looking for something to play through your Alexa in your ICUs, Spotify does have a playlist called Calming Music for Dogs. Oh, we, excellent. We, t we, we use that, um, and there is a... Uh, I'm pretty sure that at Mount Laurel, they use the Calming Music for Dogs, and they also have a cat playlist as well. Nice, um, nice. Because you know your fellow BTS ECC, Karen Roach, is all about the cat comfort. Yes, of course she is. Playing, yes. playing the uh, wonderful cat tunes in there to help keep them calm and everything. I love it. And yeah, for your all right, well, kind of along those same lines too, real quick, for your feline friends, it might not be pain management related, but patient comfort wise, if you have like portable oxygen bubblers in your ICU, you can just run like an open oxygen line into their water bowl and run it at like half a liter per minute and make a little bubbler in their water bowl. Cats drink so much better from a bu from bubbling water dish, like a little water fountain. <laughs> like there, there are so many things like that, that like, not actually treating the patient in any way, cat or dog, that help make their experience so much better. 
Yeah, I love those things. Again, don't get me wrong. I like drugs, okay? Like, I got, <laughs> like, drugs literally tattooed on my body because I think that pharmacology is so fascinating. Yes. However, I do think a lot of the stuff, like, a lot of these patients that are hospitalized, it's, like, simple nursing care stuff. Like, it doesn't even involve drugs. Things that we can do to make our patients have an overall better, less fearful experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. I'm going to look into this bubbler thing. Now yeah. you got me <laughs> my wheels turning. <laughs> That's a great idea. All right. Well, I thank you guys so much for uh, hanging out with the anesthesia nerds today. And um, just a heads up, if people want to hear you speak, Currently, this episode is uh, going to go out at the beginning of August in 2022. Are you guys both going to be speaking at IVEX this year? I will. Jeff will not. Yeah, I'm skipping this year. I mean, I'm skipping this year as well, but we <laughs> will there. support you, Dave. Yes, yes. We will support <laughs> Dave from afar. There you go. Yes. All right. I appreciate Great. it. Well, thank you guys so much for being here and hanging out on the podcast and everything you do with the Vet Tech Cafe and supporting veterinary technician career initiatives. Very much appreciated. And you guys are awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Definitely thank you. enjoyed it. <laughs>